Uh, let's open our Bibles to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We're looking at the first seven verses here. I've titled uh, this morning's message, God Loves a Cheerful Giver. I think this study is going to be a little surprising for some, um, as I do see a distinction between what was part of the law as far as tithing, and I'll I'll take you there, and um, how it's maintained, but somewhat in a different way in the New Testament. So I need to lay a little background, because it's been a couple weeks since we've been in Corinthians, and um, so let's do a little bit of a review. Since Paul's first letter, the Corinthian church has been swayed by false teachers who stirred up the people against Paul. They claimed he was fickle, proud, unimpressive in appearance and speech, dishonest, and unqualified as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So Paul sent Titus to Corinth to deal with these difficulties And upon his return, he rejoiced to hear of the Corinthians' change of heart. Paul wrote this letter to express his thanksgiving for the repentant majority and to appeal to the rebellious minority to accept his authority. Throughout the book, he defends his conduct, character, and calling as an apostle of Jesus Christ. The theme of vindication is clear in these chapters one through nine. Certain false prophets had mounted an effective campaign against Paul to the church at Corinth. And Paul was now forced to take a number of steps to overcome the opposition. This epistle expresses the apostle's joy over the triumph of the true gospel in Corinth chapters one through seven. And it acknowledges the godly sorrow and repentance of the bulk of the believers. He also urges the Corinthians to fulfill the promise of making a liberal uh, contribution for the poor among the Christians in Judah in chapters 8 and 9. Now this collection would not only assist the poor but it would also demonstrate the concern of Gentile Christians in Macedonia and Acacia uh, for the, uh, the Jewish Christians in Judea, thus displaying the unity of Jews and Gentiles in the body of Christ. Now I'm going to say something you're not going to believe. We are going to go through chapters 7, 8, and the first seven verses of chapter 9. Why do you laugh? (laughs) Oh, ye of little faith. Part of what I just read basically is seven and eight. And so the subject matter that we're dealing with here is Paul responding in letter form about dealing with these guys that have um, risen up against Paul And they simply weren't impressed with him. Um, They weren't impressed with his appearance. They thought he was proud and fickle. His speech, dishonest and qualified. And this gives us a little insight, I think, into actually what Paul looked like. Um, We know he had affirmities. He had a thorn in the flesh. We really don't know what that was. But basically what we're saying is, as they looked at his outward appearance, They were thinking, this guy doesn't look like Charlton Heston at all. Uh, He just didn't look like the apostle type in their opinion. Now, I want you to remember the background to to Corinth. It was the wealthiest city in Paul's day. Remember the two ports and uh, the 700,000 people, two-thirds of which were slaves? They had the money. And um, Paul now 
is appealing to them. So let's, let's go to chapter 7. Remember, last time we were here, we were talking about not being unequally yoked with, with unbelievers, and that's how chapter 6 ends. And in chapter 7, he comes right out, and I'm just going to read through most of this, and that's how we're going to pull this off this morning. I'll stop and comment in a couple places. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have defrauded no one. I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I'm exceedingly joyful in all of our tribulation. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we had troubles on every side. Outsides were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. So he had sent Titus to Corinth to deal with these rebel rousers and uh, now he's being comforted because Titus has come back and he's giving his report. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation by which he was comforted in you. When he told you of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. Now this, this one actually caused me to pause and think a little bit. We're, we're dealing with the subject of the sin that took place in 1 Corinthians 5. And the church wasn't dealing with it. And the idea here is he's writing because he realizes if he doesn't deal with it forcefully, he says, look, I'm not even there, but this is what I tell you to do. Kick the guy out. Uh, he thinks he's saved, he's not. And uh, that's the most loving thing you can do. And then he goes on to say, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So he has to deal with a heavy subject from a distance, and he says, but I don't regret it. And then he turns around and says, but I do regret it. And there's something about when you have to uh, deal with sin in the church, you might not want to do it, but it's got to be done. And so I believe that's why Paul is saying what he's saying. Um, I don't regret it, but yet at the same time, I don't like doing stuff like that. So I, I do regret it. At least that's my take on it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Remember, the guy repented. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. Uh, For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. This is a good scripture. For godly sorrow produces repentance to salvation. Not to be regretted by the sorrow of world-produced death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrow in a godly matter. What diligence it produced in you. Uh, what uh, clearing of yourselves, what indignation, vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Therefore, we have been comforted in your comfort, and we rejoice exceedingly more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Titus had no idea what he was going to get himself into, and Paul sent him there. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I'm not ashamed, 
But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. And his affection are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him, therefore I rejoice. I have confidence in you in this matter. I think it went something like this. We got problems in Corinth, Titus. There's some rebel rousers that are getting up. They don't want to hear what we have to say. And so I'm going to send you there, and I want you to take care of it. So he doesn't know what he's walking into. But what he finds out when he gets there is there's been this whole change of heart because of the letter. And when Titus finally shows up, uh, he was greeted by the majority with people were saying, man, we didn't know what we're doing. And if Paul hadn't written the letter, we wouldn't have dealt with this issue. We did deal with the issue. And we're glad that we did. And, um, and now he's sending you here. Man, this is great. We're glad to see you. So not knowing um, what Titus is going to bring back to Paul, he doesn't know until he gets there. And so all of a sudden he meets Titus and he's, okay. <laughs> What happened? And he just said, you wouldn't believe it. The majority of them um, were repented with fear and trembling and were excited to see Titus. And now he's writing to them in chapter seven, expressing his gratitude of their acceptance of receiving Titus and also the message that he had to bring to the Corinthian church. He says, now it's only gonna strengthen you. There were still a band that were um, rebels, and, um, but not the majority. Now, because they were a wealthy church, remember, 700,000, two-thirds of them have, had slaves, and um, they had money to give, and now he's concerned for the poor Jews down in Jerusalem that are really going through it financially and they need help. And so he addresses this in chapter eight from Macedonia and basically asking them to help out. Look, you guys got a lot, these guys have nothing. You're Gentiles, they're Jews. By the way, who were these poor, poor Jews in Jerusalem? The apostles. The, the early church were, were all Jews. There weren't Gentiles until Cornelius came along. So, He's appealing to them um, and come right out and saying it, asking them to be liberal in their giving. So as we get to chapter eight, we begin with um, um, an example here of uh, actually the Lord himself. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia then a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty, abundance in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, that's important, yes, and beyond their ability, they willing, freely, willingly gave, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we had hoped, but first gave themselves to the Lord, now this is important, and then to us by the will of God. So, we urged Titus that he had, um, what he had begun, so he would also complete uh, this grace in you as well. And now he uses, Paul uses in verses seven through nine here, an example of the Lord himself. But as you abound in everything, in, in faith and speech and knowledge and all diligence and your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he was rich. He owns cattle on a thousand hill. He created everything that there is, belongs to him. He's rich. 
Yet he was rich, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. So basically what Paul is doing, he's saying, look, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem are poor. You Corinthians are in the wealthiest city and are very, very prosperous because of the two ports that you have with your importing and exporting and so on and so forth. And uh, he's using the analogy, so to speak, of that's what the Lord did. He was rich. But for their sake, he became poor for, for our sake. Now, in verses 10 through 15, we have uh, the purpose of giving. And in this, I give my advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it. That as there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion of what you have. But first, for if there is first a, a willing mind. So now it becomes a personal thing. If you, it's gotta be in your heart to wanna help is the idea. It is accepted according to what one has and not according to what one does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but be in equality, that now at this time your abundance may supply the lack, their lack, that their abundance also may supply your lack, and there may be equality, as it is written. Now every time I say as it is written, again I'm tying the Old Testament together with the New. He who has gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. In verses 16 to 24, we have the policies in giving. But thanks be to God, who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus, for he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord, and we have sent him uh, the brother whose praise and is in the council throughout all the churches. And not only that, but who was also chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift, which is ministered by us to the glory of the Lord himself to show your ready mind, avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift which is administered by us Uh, providing honorable things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have often proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent because of the great confidence which we have in you. If anyone inquires about Titus, well, he's my partner and fellow worker concerning you, or if our brother are inquired about, they are also our messengers of the church, the glory of Christ. Therefore, show to them and before the church the proof of your love and of your boasting on our behalf. Basically, he's saying, you made a commitment to help out. And now he's writing to them, saying, I want you to follow through with what you promised you would do. And so... I just made it through two chapters in maybe 15 minutes. And you say you don't believe in miracles, some of you. Which brings us um, to our text. And this morning, um, I would like to look at the Old Testament principle of tithing. And I want to compare it to the New Testament teaching of giving. They're the same in some aspects and they're clearly not the same in other aspects. So we read here in our text, now, concerning the ministry to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you, for I know your willingness 
about which I boast to you in Macedonians that Achaia was ready a year ago and your zeal has stirred up the majority. Yet I have sent the brethren lest your boast, our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect that I said uh, you may be ready. Left, lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your bountiful gift beforehand, which had previous, you had previously promised that it be, be ready as a matter of generosity and not in a grudging obligation. In other words, he's saying, when you wanted to help, your attitude was really good. And he says, I don't want that to change. I don't want you to feel that you have to, because you made this commitment, uh, feel obligated uh, of this generosity or do it um, grudgingly. Well, we said we'd do it, so I guess better fall through on it and better do it. And then our main two verses. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. We're talking primarily about money here and giving. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart. Now we're not talking about tithing necessarily here but what has the Lord put on your heart and uh, to give? And don't do it grudgingly out of necessity. Why? And here's the title of the message. For God loves a cheerful giver. Chuck likes to point out, Pastor Chuck, when he was alive, liked to point out that the word there is actually hilarious. The Lord loves a hilarious giver. And uh, it's really what we're talking about here is a matter of the heart. But let's do an Old Testament Bible study on tithing. Where does it first appear? We need to go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 14. And while you're turning, I'm gonna give you a little bit of background here. Lot was living in Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah got attacked by five kings and um, uh, they took Lot, and they went way north, north of Dan. I'm going to be showing you a picture of Dan in just a little bit. And uh, the battle took place by the Salt Sea. Um, we find in verses, where uh, is 11? Yeah, I just want to point something out here. I can't verify, but it's something I've heard over the years that in, as they're now coming back, Abraham, because he had taken Lot, takes 318 of his men and goes after them. And he's successful. And he's bringing back all that these five kings stole from the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, part of the stealing process was taking Lot. And they took everything that Lot had too. And now Abraham is coming back and he's recovered everything. And it tells us that in, uh, what verse is that? Verse 13, um, then one had escaped, came and told Abraham, notice it says the Hebrew. Might I point out this is the first place in the Bible you read about a Hebrew in Genesis chapter 14. In verse 13, um, Verse 11, they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and went their way. And they also took Lot, Abraham's brother, who dwelt in Sodom and all his goods and departed. And um, verse 14, now when Abraham heard that his brother had been taken, he armed with 318 trained servants who were born in his own house. And they went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, a little sidetrack here. Whenever we go to Israel, we go to um, this nature reserve. 
Um, it has um, not the ancient gate that I'm going to put up on the screen that Abraham actually would have went through, but there's a newer one there. When, usually when we go there, this is where they set up one of the golden calves, one in Bethel, remember? And the other one was in Dan. And I don't tell the people that I'm gonna take them to the a spot that this is actually where they put the golden calf. I'm halfway through the Bible study, I go, oh, by the way, this is where it was. This is an a spot. But then we climb up, and uh, everybody knows that the Golan Heights are in the news right now. So this is part of that whole area. This has got a, a, a beautiful um, vista, it's close to um, the Golan. And uh, basically, we, we take this nature hike, and it's absolutely gorgeous. And um, within the last 25 years, what they discovered, um, and actually Pastor Chuck and Mike McIntosh donated the money because they found the original entrance to this city of Dan, and I'm gonna show it to you. It's continually being excavated to this day. And it's when we read here that um, he went as far north, Abraham did, as far north as Dan, well, Abraham went through those gates right there. Those are the original gates during his time that have just recently been discovered. This particular picture doesn't have the canopies over. As I was looking with Thomas, which one to put up there, all the other pictures have these huge canopies that cover it because these stones are much smaller and they can deteriorate very easily. So now they're trying to preserve them. But this is an A site and when it says he went as far as Dan, um, in verse 14, and the servants and went and pursued as, as far as Dan. You can leave that up. Uh, he divided his forces against them, verse 15, by night. He went and his servants and attacked them and pursued them as far as Hoboth, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. Now, on his way back, and the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlomer, <laughs> and the king who was with him. All right, now verse 18 is where I wanted to give that much of a background because as they're going back, we're introduced to the king or or, nor the priest of Salem and his name is Melchizedek. So verse 18, then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the most high God. Let me just stop and say that we're gonna go to the New Testament and we're gonna find out he was not only a priest, but he was also a king. We're gonna learn that he had no beginning of days nor end of days. He had neither father or mother. So we're thinking, who is this guy? This is what we call a Christophanes. This is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Isn't it interesting what he's bringing out? Bread and wine. What did we do this morning? Look at your bulletin cover. We do this in remembrance of who? He's actually giving us a picture, a demonstration. It'll become more clear when we go to Hebrews and we find out just who Melchizedek really is. The king of Salem. Well, today Salem is called Jerusalem. Salem, Jerusalem. And um, he was a priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And here's the first mention of tithe in the Bible. And he gave him a tithe of all, or a tenth of all. And it's the first place that it happens. And Abraham here is doing this. 
So let's um, turn to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter five. Let me give a little background in the writing of the Hebrews. They were having difficulty with accepting Jesus as Messiah for a lot of different reasons. One of the reasons they were having difficulty is he said he can't be the Messiah. Um, He's not a Levite. He comes from the tribe of Judah. So in order to be a high priest of the Levitical priesthood, who was the first high priest? Well, that would have been Aaron. And that was passed on down to the Levites. And it actually became a law. And I'm gonna show you from the scriptures where this was not a suggestion This was a commandment. So as you look at Hebrews, it gives us more details of this. Hebrews chapter five, we'll look at the first 10 verses here. For every high priest from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. That's what the high priest does. He was an intercessor. We can... He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is also beset by weaknesses. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sins. In other words, he had to atone for himself before he could atone for the people. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God just as Aaron was. There it is. Aaron was the first high priest. And then he says this. This was of the tribe of the Levites. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, yet he uh, who said to him, now we quote Psalm 2 verse 7, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And then he quotes Psalm 110, He says that in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now this is is mind-boggling stuff if you're Jewish. What do you mean that the Messiah is not after the tribe of Levi? So Paul is explaining it to it. No, the scripture teaches that when the Messiah, the son, comes, he's gonna be a high priest, but not after the order of the Levitical priesthood but after the order of Melchizedek, the first high priest from Salem, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God, high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, not the Levitical priesthood. Go to chapter seven, and um, we'll read the first three verses, and we get a little bit more information about Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, the king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part. So here is a mention of the first tithe that Abraham gave to Melchizedek, um, being translated king of righteousness. So his name is is not only priest, but he's the king of righteousness. Starting to sound more like the Lord? Well, this should um, nail it down. And then also the king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Then it says, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like forget the like he is, the son of God, because only the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are eternal. Can I have an amen on that one? Do you see how this is a Christophanes? 
can we see this was actually Jesus Christ himself because he's the only one who has no beginning, no end, who's always been. And, um, but made like the Son of God remains a priest continually. So we're told now that you don't have to go to a priest to go into some booth and confess your sins and you're absolved, go home and say uh, five Hail Marys and ten Our Fathers and everything will be fine. No, we have one mediator, one high priest. Um, You don't need to confess. Well, we're told to confess our sins and pray for one another, and we do. Um, But we know who's doing the forgiving, and we have direct access, one mediator, and that's Jesus himself. So when you sin, the Bible says if you confess your sin, what? Well, he's faithful, he's just, to forgive your sins, and then to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And so we have, I wanted to give an Old Testament perspective. There's still another place that I want to go to. Um, It's in the book of Malachi, chapter, no, first I want to show you the law itself. Go back to the book of Numbers, chapter 18 in the Old Testament. Numbers 18, and we'll look at verse 21. And this is, was actually a part of the laws given to the children of Israel. Chapter 18 of Numbers, verse 21. Behold, I have given the children of Levi all the tithes in Israel as an inheritance in return for the work which they perform, the work of the tabernacle meeting. So in other words, when they came into the promised land, every tribe got a portion of the land, correct? Except for the Levites, they didn't. Their portion was to do the work in the temple, therefore they couldn't plow their fields and make money that way. So now we have a law being given. And law is um, the tithe is for the Levi. And hereafter the children of Israel shall not come near the tabernacle of meeting lest they bear sin and die. But the Levites shall perform the work of the tabernacle of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. It will be a statute forever throughout your generations that among the children of Israel they have no inheritance. But the other tribes, of course, did have an inheritance. For the tithes of the children of Israel which they offer up as a heave offering to the Lord, I have given to the Levites as an inheritance. Therefore, I have said to them among the children of Israel, they have no inheritance. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the Levites and say to them, when you take from the children of Israel the tithes, which I have given you from them as your inheritance, then you shall offer up a heave offering to the Lord a tenth of the tithe. So now we have it not only being given till Melchizedek, but now it actually becomes a law for the Levitical priesthood. This is how they were uh, paid their um, bills. Let's go to uh, Malachi chapter three, Old Testament. Evidently what happened is the children of Israel didn't want to give their money to the Levites. And now it's going to be addressed. And unfortunately, uh, there are many churches today who hammer on this verse and they try to apply it uh, to the New Testament church. And I'm here to tell you this morning that's not the case. It's not a Levitical law for you and I to tithe. Giving is a different subject. But to the Jew, it was a law. It was a requirement. And we read in chapter three, verse six, the Lord is calling them out and they're not tithing to the Levites. Verse six says, for I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O son of Jacob. Yet from the days of your father, you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, in what way shall we return? 
And he says, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even the whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and prove me now. This is the only place that the Lord says, go ahead and prove me. Unfortunately, the American church has taken this and used it sort of as a sledgehammer. I would say actually a guilt trip, saying you're robbing God, you're not bringing in your tithes and putting them there. No, this is Levitical, this is Jewish. And it's a law, and they're not paying and giving their tithes to the Levites who have no portion of land for themselves. And he says, go ahead and prove it. Prove it to me. You be faithful in giving your tithe to the Levite and see if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour out on you such a blessing that there's no room enough to receive it. I can't tell you this is probably the prosperity teacher's favorite verse right here. And he says, you want to be, you want to be rich? You want to be wealthy? You want to have a lot of money? Then tithe. And uh, see if you won't get a double portion. I'll bless your socks off if you'll just tithe. And my pointing out this morning, um, unfortunately, they've taken this out of context and applied it to New Testament giving rather than Old Testament tithing. Turn with me now, I'll leave the Old Testament, I think you pretty much got a feel for where tithing was established, that it's part of the law, that it didn't keep the law, and um, the Lord accuses them of robbing God. Now let's look at it from a New Testament perspective. Let's start with Matthew chapter six. Dwight, you never talk about money from the pulpit. Oh yeah, we do. When we get to those portions of scripture that talk about giving, and money. So this is one of those studies. Matthew 6 verses 19 to 24 deals primarily with where our heart is and giving. Verse 19 says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy. Thieves do not break in and steal. Why? For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now this verse, no man can serve two masters for he will either hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other and now he tells us what he's talking about. You cannot serve God and money. It's one or the other. Now having said that, um, it's... The New Testament idea of tithing and giving is not predicated on giving a tenth, but where's your heart? Where's your investment? What do you do with your money? Um, Most people who aren't saved, um, um, that's their primary goal in life is to make a lot of money. And uh, here Jesus addresses it, but it's not the amount that's important, but it's what it costs you. So I'd like you to turn with me now to Mark chapter 12 as Jesus teaches on this very subject in verse 41. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and he saw how the people put money into the treasury and many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites which make a Daenerys. Okay, here's a mite right here. It's really, really small. (laughs) You got this in Israel. And that's what one looks like. 
Well, this woman had two of them, but that's all she had. And the Lord, as he's watching the rich put in out of abundance, Jesus calls the disciples aside in verse 43 and said to his disciples, assuredly I say to you, this poor woman has put in more than all those who have been given into the treasury, for they all put in out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. She just gave it all away. And um, that's the Lord's observation on this. So it's, it's not the amount, because um, who's really rich? George Soros, poor example, he's not saved. <laughs> but he's got trillions, and he's got a lot of money. So let's say that he decides to um, uh, go to church and give some money, and he throws in $10 million. What is $10 million to George Soros? Not very much at all. Didn't cost him a thing. Meant relatively nothing to him. And here we find in... Um, Um, let's go to Luke chapter 11 and find out that the Lord actually is looking at the scribes and the Pharisees it brings up a question which we'll look at and address. Luke 11, what's happening here is Jesus is talking about the uh, Pharisees and tithing. And he says in verse 42, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs. So they go to their garden and they pick out some mint and they go, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. That's mine. Oh, this one's yours, Lord. They got a separate pile over there for their mint. And then they'll go to the tomato patch and they go, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. That's mine. Lord, here's your tomato. He says, you go and you tithe of your um, herbs and your mints, but you have passed by justice and the love of God. And then he says this, these things you ought to have done. And my question is, what things? And the question is, I believe he's talking about tithing. And without leaving the others undone, I will not be dogmatic on what we just said, because my bigger understanding of the New Testament is there's a distinction between the two. It's not the matter of a tenth. It's just a matter of if, if you have a lot, then if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. But if you sow abountifully, you'll reap abountifully. Where? Up there, wherever your heart is. That's where your treasure's gonna be. So what's wiser? Spend it all on stuff down here <laughs> where it rusts and can get stolen or send it ahead where it'll never be taken away. And it's really a matter of the heart. But it does appear here that Jesus says that you, he's condoning it as far as I can tell. Now, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians 16. And looking at verses one through four. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given you orders to the church of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there will be no collection when I come. And when I come, whoever you approve by your letter, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it's fitting that I go also, there will go with him. In my opinion, he's addressing this to the church at Corinth. And he's reminding them over this year period of time that he wants them to take up this offering on a weekly basis so that when he comes, he doesn't have to take it himself. That's my personal interpretation. Most Bible teachers and most prosperity teachers say this is proof that you're supposed to be tithing every Sunday. And um, 
I'll let you guys work that one out on your own. But remember, Corinth was the wealthiest city in Paul's missionary journeys, and that's why he's appealing to them to uh, remember the poor. And a little sidetrack here, we do that. Uh, I just got on talking to Cynthia about some of the money being sent over to um, um, the Ukraine, northern Poland. Um, I'll even get more sidetracked. One of the guys at men's prayer yesterday said they have a friend living in Belarus. And um, she said, would you please give this message to your friends in America? Everything that you're watching on the media, on the CBS, NBC, ABC, Fox News, every one of them, everything they're saying is a complete lie. And they're doing the same thing in Russia with the propaganda. And I don't want to get too sidetracked here, but most people who aren't aware from a biblical perspective what's really going on here, but I want you to know that the American church is a wealthy church compared to the rest of the world. And so what should we be doing? We should be helping the poor that that need our help right now. Same with Haiti. Somebody just dropped off a check for $2,000 this last week and said, send it to Haiti. We did a a funeral. We don't charge for funerals or we don't charge for the meal afterwards. And he said, what do you mean you don't charge? I said, we don't do that. You're part of the family here. I'm not going to take money for doing your funeral. And we'll provide the food for the meal afterwards. Well, that didn't sit well with them. So they said, okay, if you're going to be that way, we're just going to take $2,000 and send it to Haiti instead. There you go. (laughs) I said, well, praise the Lord. And uh, so um, it's a matter of the heart. And yes, if you have, you should give. And, um, but it's the corrupt government, not the people. I really got to clarify that. The people, this is the story that I heard, that when they get saved over there, they don't say, did you get saved? They say, did you repent? Ooh, that's interesting. Did you repent? I think they got a pretty good grasp on what being a Christian is really all about when you put it in that context. You might say, well, I believe. When somebody tells me that and I know they're not saved, I says, you know what? The Bible says that the devils believe too that Jesus is the Son of God and they tremble. Are they going to heaven? No. And yet you can say you believe, but there's the fruit that goes along with it. And a natural response this attitude of gratitude of all that the Lord has done for us. If you see your brother has need, this is in my notes, isn't in my notes. If you see a brother who's in need and it's in your ability to help him and you don't help them, then Paul says, how does the love of Christ dwell in you? I mean, it's the very attribute and fruit because he was rich, he became poor so that we could be free. And that should affect us in such a way that if we have much, then we should be looking to help out those who have little. Another good place for an amen. So that's a different concept from the law of tithing from the Old Testament to the art of giving in the new. I want to give you a proper way of giving and a good way of giving, and a bad way of giving examples from Acts chapter four. So let's turn there. The early church all just exploded. In Acts two, 3,000 people got saved. They were from all over, everywhere. And they didn't want to go home. They wanted to get rooted and grounded. They wanted Bible studies and teaching. So a lot of them stayed in Jerusalem. And... Um, problem was to feed that 3,000 people uh, they're going to need some money to take care of that so in chapter 4 verse 32 now the multitudes of those who believed notice the word multitudes of those who believed were of one heart one soul neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own 
but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Now, there was there anyone among them who lacked, in other words, they came and they ran out of money because they're traveling, for all who were possessors of lands or houses, they sold them. And they brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and they laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, what a great name, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, so he was from Cyprus, having land, he sold it. And he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. He thought to himself, man, I got a lot. A lot of land, a lot of this. So he took a portion of it, sold it, and he gave gave it to the apostles and he had, here, feed them. All right, that's the right way to go about doing it. Chapter five, the first 11 verses, is the wrong way about going about doing it. But a certain man named Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, sold the possession. They had heard about what Barabbas did, and uh, he was getting a lot of attention for it, not wanting it. But he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it. Is everybody tracking with me here? They sold the, the land for $500, but they only put, gave $400 to the apostles. They kept back part of it, and both Ananias and Sapphira were, were in on this. And they brought a certain part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? Well, how in the world did he know that? Well, the Lord showed him. And while it remained, now this is important, while it remained, Was it not your own? You didn't have to do that. So again, free will is the idea here. And after even you sold it, was it not in your own control? You could have kept the money. You didn't have to give it. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last, so great fear fell upon those who heard these things. The Lord is setting a precedent here because he, as a result of this, now his wife is gonna come in and the same thing's gonna happen to her. And um, the apostles ask her, he says, uh, did you guys agree with your husband to sell the land for this much? She says, yep, that much. So she lied too and she falls over dead. And the result of this in verse 11 is so great fear came upon the church and upon all those who heard these things. I'm glad this was just an example because if it was applicable for today, everybody here would be dead, (laughs) including me. No, we need to be upright before the Lord. Well, if I'm not, is he gonna take me out like Ananias and Sapphira? No, he's setting an example. He's saying, I'm serious about your motive. Why do you want to do it? You want to give a lot? You want to give a little? Give whatever you want to. That's up to you. But don't lie. Um, Because really, what did the Lord say about giving when you give your arms? Arms? (laughs) Arms? Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing for your heavenly Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Barnabas wasn't looking for attention. His heart was moved. These people aren't eating. We had to feed them. Ananias and Sapphira wanted attention. And this is what I think about when I see these TV commercials with these checks six feet long and five feet tall and the cameras are rolling, you know. (laughs) And their name, this is who gave $25,000 to this organization. Well, you just got your reward. Instead of doing it uh, in secret. So there's a right way and a wrong way. I thought about this last night, I couldn't believe it because it happened so many years ago. I'll do a little sidetrack story to to illustrate the wrong way of doing this and what 
A lot of churches do, but this was over the top. I bet you this has to be 30 years ago. If I mentioned the name of this evangelist, everybody here would know who I'm talking about. And being a part of the um, pastoral fellowship at that time, um, we brought in this very famous evangelist and uh, preached a good message, had a good band, and um, basically at the end of it he says, you know it takes a lot of money to put on one of these things. So uh, what I'm gonna do is, we're just gonna pray right now. And um, it went something like this. Uh, Lord, we thank you so much for what you're about to do and providing for the needs for all the expenses of this conference. Uh, Yeah, uh, that many? Okay, the Lord just told me that there's 100 people out here right now that need to give $50. And you just raise your hand and we'll count. And he would not stop until he got 48 and 49 was getting harder, but it was also getting more and more pressure on the people. So 100 people, $50. Okay, that's good. Put your hands up. Oh, what's that, Lord? Oh, oh yeah. There's also 50 people here who are supposed to give $500. And now I'm just looking to raise your hand. Is the, is the Lord talking to you about this? Oh, you're, oh, there's a hand, yeah, that's good. Oh, there's another one over there. Okay, we got our 50. And then, yeah, you know where I'm going. What's that, Lord? Yeah, 25, okay. There's 25 people here that are supposed to give $10,000. I'm serious. And um, we're gonna sit here until uh, those come in And I remember at that point, I was already getting up out of my seat because we didn't know any of this was coming on. And the last one was this. Oh, yes, one last time, okay. There's 10 people here that are supposed to give $25,000. And we will just wait until the the Lord brings it in, and I'm sure it'll cover all the expenses of the conference. Oh, it covered more than all the expenses of the conference. Stuff that, that really happens, Yes, that was the biggest degree I've ever seen it demonstrated. But talking about um, putting pressure on people to give, I got up and walked out. I was embarrassed that I was a part of any of that because none of us that were putting it on knew that he was gonna do this. But what do you do? He's got a captive audience and people are feeling, Lord, is he talking to me? Am I the one that's supposed to be doing that? And that's what people are actually thinking. So I, the Lord reminded me of that just yesterday. And I thought, I'm gonna tell that story because there are prosperity teachers that will tell you that if you want to be wealthy, then you will sow your seed faith to this ministry and God's gonna bless you a hundredfold. And um, they use this with the idea that if you want to be rich, then you must give. And that's not what the Bible teaches. Well, except if you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. And some of you are thinking, Dwight, I hope you're not ending the Bible study this way this morning. I'm not. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And let's pick it up in verse 5. Talking about certain prosperity teachers here. These men using wranglings of men of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. In other words, making money off the ministry. And what does Paul tell Timothy to do? From such, withdraw yourself. That's not me. But godliness with contentment, well, that's great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out, and having food and clothing, and with that be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. 
I gotta read that again. Does it say that money is the root of all evil? No, it's the love of money that is the root of all evil from which some have strayed. You see, money is amoral. You can use it um, for good or you can use it for evil. Um, for, and from some which have strayed from the faith because of their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and patience. Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold of eternal life, of which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus, who witness the good confessions, confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless, until our Lord Jesus Christ appears. O Lord, come soon. Which he will manifest in his own time. Blessed is he who is the blessed, holy, uh, potent, King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality dwelling in an unapproachable light, um, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's stand and we'll close in a word of prayer. Lord, we're grateful that your word deals with every issue of life. And uh, you told us that your word changes not. And um, Lord, just... um, Speak to us on an individual basis about the importance of our free will and our giving, uh, our motive for giving. And um, we just thank you that your word deals with this subject very, very clearly, and we're grateful. And so we hold up uh, the rest of this day and the rest of this week. We love you for the way that you do provide for us. And um, we just pray you go before the rest of our week. In Jesus' name, amen.